0: I don't think I introduced myself, so if you are a guest, I'm not not the lead guy, (laughs) not the lead guy. But I'm privileged to serve here at the at the Hill. Um, So I'm Sean Robinson, Um, and yeah, man, we got an awesome team. Um, And uh, I'm up here because unfortunately uh, Jimmy Jimmy is 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 sick. Nothing crazy. He's on the up and up, Um, but he called me Friday, or he texted a few of us and was like, guys. I need somebody, and so we were like, oh, "Man, it's Friday. <laughs> you better call on the Lord, right?" Um, but no, we—it's it's a joy to, to to serve the pulpit with with brothers and um, and so yeah, man. Just in obedience, we said, "You know, if, if if you need somebody to bring the word, um, I would be glad to do so." But we won't be in Hebrews today. Uh, we'll be—we'll take a little detour, and we're going to be in First John five. So that's towards the back. If you got your Bible, if you don't have one, there's um, Bibles under the seat, but First John five is where is where we'll 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 spend some time today. I'll say uh, this to start. Um, often when a when a disciple maker um, is looking to walk somebody through the Word, um, maybe specifically that doesn't know that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't know the gospel, oftentimes they're going to find their way if they don't camp out for a while in the gospel of John. So the gospel of John, why the gospel of John? Um, There's a number of reasons, but uh, ultimately the gospel of John was written to persuade people to actually believe in Jesus. Right from the start, the opening verses declare that Jesus is God, with an emphasis on the unique relationship Christ was uh, uh, given, right with God the Father. And then there's the the well-known summary of it in John three sixteen. Right, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Right, we all know it. Right, so we see a, a summary of the gospel there. I and mean, then towards the end, the Apostle John gives us the purpose of writing this particular gospel in, in chapter 20, verse 31. The Apostle John writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John presses to make evident here is the reason why he writes, right? primarily a book for the unbeliever. He does something very similar in his first letter um however this this time he writes to the to the believer in Christ, right and so we can't overlook the fact that John right, he's giving foundational gospel truths not to the unbeliever that they may know, but to the believer that they might remember that they might hold on, that they might uh, grasp it um, even more, right so the apostle John dealing with a group of folks who had doubted the deity of jesus uh, they, this group they held the belief of what we know as Gnosticism, right so uh, the, the, the group that was combating the gospel, um, they believed that the way of salvation was through secret, superior knowledge granted to the initiated. Uh, more knowingly, they, they basically just denied that Jesus was God actually in the flesh. They denied that he came as a human, um, that he was God as well uh, in the flesh. So some of the false teachers John right combating in this letter had begun to infiltrate, to intrude on the church with this type of teaching that was in opposition to the teachings of Jesus. So partly why John writes, right, this letter to the Christian community to clear the air of these falsehoods that were coming, uh, to bring the believers back to the basics of Christian life, right, and to reinforce their faith. And so the reason the early church gave credit of this letter to the Apostle John was uh, the style very much so mimics the Gospel of John. Uh, It also, again, mimics what we see in Second John and Third John and also Revelation, they believe, was written by the Apostle John. And so right, we have these words, inspired by God, recorded for the saints of old and of the saints of today. So during the time that this letter was written, John, probably the only disciple left of the original 12, he was uh, the only disciple that didn't die a martyr's death. Right. He wrote this letter to the churches uh, in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey uh, now, um, but roughly between 80 to 85 A.D. So you're looking at 80 to 85 years after Christ was crucified, rose. Right. Which meant that the church now consisted of second, third generation Christians. Um, and for some Christians, this was a time of uh, man, persecution. Right. For others, the hype of who Jesus was, it, it dwindled and Ultimately, you saw a devotion to Christ in the lives of believers uh, begin to fade. It begin to, uh, to, the light begin to go a little bit dimmer, right? And with Gnostic ideologies infiltrating the body of Christ with false doctrine, uh, some Christians were becoming lax in their Christian standards and devotion. And considering these circumstances, John, uh, John writes, right? He then addresses them uh, in this letter. And so to put a microscope to how he ends it, um, 1 John 5:13 to the end. If you want to put your eyes there, it reads like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests And Father, we ask that your spirit just would reveal to us, that it would reaffirm really just our souls, um, all the more of uh, just how beautiful your your word is, um, just how beautiful your truths are, but yet also that we are to take heed to the warnings and wish that we see um, here in this passage, God, but steer our steer our hearts towards you, um, and again to bring understanding by your spirit through the word. Um, and it's in your son's name that we ask it all. Amen. So as John reminds the Christian then, right, we too find assurance in our knowing that gives light to who we have become. And we know with, so here's my main point, we know with certainty that salvation in Christ is ours, right, when we receive and rest in what? His promises as sons and daughters of God. So we know with certainty that salvation in Christ is Ours when we receive and rest in his promises as sons and daughters of God. So we know eternal life is assured. And so with these subpoints, points, if, if you're taking notes, I also want to leave you guys with a therefore, right? So we know eternal life is assured. Therefore, we are confident with God in prayer. Now, throughout the letter, John has been giving them criteria by which to to test themselves and others, right? He, his purpose is... Being to establish their assurance, this letter is to assure you that, what, you have eternal life. And have you ever been so, like, have you ever been so convinced, right, and certain of something only to uh, be let down at the end, right? Where you were so sure of it, but at the end of the day you were misguided and ultimately you were led by a lie, right? A reality for many that think they are going to heaven or they think They know Jesus intimately and they would claim they're certain of it. But yet then breathe their last breath only to be made aware that what they were certain of wasn't actually so certain at all. Family, this will be the reality for all who are misguided when it comes to the location of their eternal destination. Right. How do you know for certain that you are saved, like that you are covered by Christ, that you will most certainly be with him in heaven? There are people today who believe that you can't know without absolute certainty that you are a Christian. They'd argue that you just have to wait until death, you know, is knocked at your door, right? And and then when it comes, only then you'll find out if you walk through the gates of heaven or not. Right? They make claims that there is no certainty to one's salvation before they die. And what we're met with in this summary of the Apostle John's letter in verse 13 is a balm for our soul and that our eternal status isn't left to haphazards. Right, The great theologian St. Augustine speaks to this in saying, right, to be assured of our salvation is no arrogant stoutness. It is faith. It is devotion. It is not presumption. It is God's promise. Right? John's heart and exhortation for the Christian is to give them assurance that they are indeed saved. Right, That they may know eternal life is assured and therefore they can hold confidence with God when they pray. It is our confidence in prayer that stems from a, a natural consequence of assurance that we have eternal life. Right? Anything that we ask that aligns to God's will, it is guaranteed to be received. Which often leads us to ask, how are we sure right, what the will of God is? How do we even know what his will is? In many ways, we see God's will revealed in in Scripture where his will is made clear, where it it explicitly or in principle, right? um, Throughout our our walk, spiritual maturity warranted to discern which principles of Scripture should be the compass in guiding our prayers. He makes it clear through his word and yet allowing the word to be the compass and yet what we ask of him should be our aim. The Apostle John labors a similar point when he records the word of Christ in John 15, 7 and 8 and 16. He says, if you abide in me, right, Jesus, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you think about what prayer is right often we hear it defined as communication with god i feel like that's the the more common definition that i hear but but defined differently prayer is not the end goal but yet it's the vehicle that gets us to the desired destination right it's the gift we've been given to speak and at at times, listen to God as he speaks, right, desiring to be simply just with him, right, to, to sense his presence, and prayer helps us arrive to that place, right? Prayer helps us arrive to the place of just being in his presence, right? We know eternal life, therefore, we are confident with God in our prayers and petitions to him, Right. It entails viewing prayer not as our attempt to get God to see things from our point of view, but as our attempt to see things from God, our Father's point of view. And it's in the growing, right, the maturing, the studying, the meditating, the uh, yeah, just meditating upon and seeking of His will through His Word, where our souls pivot from asking ourselves again, not what I want, but yet what, but wh- Lord, what do You want? Right? What do You want? Like that, I want that to be my desire. Right. We know eternal life. It's assured. Therefore, we are confident with God in prayer. And additionally, right, we know victory over sin. Therefore, we are covered by Christ. We know victory over sin. Therefore, we are covered by Christ. So in verses 16 and 17, John gets detailed concerning prayer. Uh, Verses 14 and 15, right, they're about petitions. Um, and in 16 and 17, John's primary emphasis is it's, its intercession, right? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So the issue John makes Known to us as seeing someone in sin, right? With verse 16 being one. So this is one of the more difficult verses to interpret in the entirety of Scripture, right? I was thinking, I was prepping, I was like, man, this is what the Lord placed on my heart, but yet why would I go here? But the Lord led us here, so we're going to be faithful to to break it down, right? Brother who is sinning a sin, right, not leading to get to death is kind of what he gives light to us, right? John then addresses someone whose sin right, brings death. So this is the crucial question, right? Is John speaking of physical death or is he speaking of spiritual death? Further, does he have a Christian in view in both instances or is the second situation that of an unbeliever? So again, presumption is unwarranted interpreting this verse, but what's key is considering that John may have spiritual death in mind in two different persons in view. Thus his argument is that Christian saints can fall into sin, but their salvation and spiritual death is not at stake because they have Christ as their atonement and advocate, and they believe in him for eternal life. So there's an underlying obligation right, to pray for restoration because this is always God's will. Right? Praying to the Lord to offer life, or he will restore the joy and vitality of their salvation since their sins do not and cannot lead to spiritual death right their sins may warrant spiritual discipline as we learn this from hebrews 12 right but they cannot experience spiritual death and then john makes mention of sin that leads to death which raises this question right what specific sin leads to death what specific sin actually leads to death and to this question there isn't a, a definitive interpretation that's made clear but three different views have been discussed pertaining right to this part of John's letter. Um, and so you'll see on the screen just three three different views that often are uh, 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 presented to us, uh, presented to the reader, uh, trying to get a grasp on what we believe John is is getting at here. Right. One being an, an explicit deadly sin. Right? This is a, a transgression against God that is willful. It's deliberate. This a sin, right, is of a serious nature And then we see a blasphemy against the Spirit of God. This looks like a thoughtful, a considered, a a willful, a spoken, and and continuous rejection of the truth to which the Spirit bears witness. And then we also see an interpretation, it being an absolute denunciation and denial of Christ and his gospel. What this looks like is sin sitting in the hearts of false teachers who knowingly and continuously oppose the witness of God, concerning the, the deity of Christ the Son, viewed not as a brother but a renouncer of the Redeemer. right? So I believe that the last interpretation uh, is, is the best choice, and if so, John, right? he's making mention that those who reject the message of the Scriptures will be met with the second death as their eternal destination. But since we can't be certain right, of the correct interpretation of the sin to death, Right It's best to focus on the positive point we pull from this text, and that is that we are to pray for our sinning brothers we know for sure that we are to be praying and laboring and interceding for our brothers that are sinning right This for certain aligns with God's will as we we see an example in Jesus' prayer for Peter right on the night Peter betrayed him. This should be our posture for for one another, right always verse 18 we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning but he who was born of God protects him that and the evil one does not touch him or right, so here John it, he's not claiming that sin won't take place at all in our lives ever right again once we become a believer we know that it won't we won't just stop sinning no like we know this by allowing scripture to interpret scripture how do we know that right because if you look at this at face value, you'll be like, all right, well, no, we, we won't sin again. No, but in First John 1, 9, what is what does the apostle John do? Right. He says to the believers, right, to confess sin, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John's purpose in writing this isn't to say that they'll be perfect and without sin. No, he's saying that in Christ, your desires change, right, rather than. Willingly give in to sin and and enjoying it freely, you're, you're fighting against sin and you're pursuing purity and holiness, right? Sin is no longer the pattern of your life. The pursuit towards sanctification is. That's what he's getting at. I mean, it becomes a daily desire to possess the character of Christ and a desire to look like and be like and act like more like our Savior Jesus. So, family, the simple fact is you can't love God and love the things that grieve him. You can't. You can't love God and be, and be neutral and right lukewarm towards the things that he hates. Right? What is your present posture and view of sin today? Like, truly, what is your present posture and view of sin today? Because how you approach and view sin will make things crystal clear of where you stand in the eyes of God. 1 John 2, 4, right? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, right? Is what? He says is, they're a liar. You can't simultaneously love God and love the things of the world. It's impossible. Like it's impossible. But For those who are assured of their salvation in Jesus, you can be assured that there is victory over sin. Thus you are covered by Christ. And when John records in 18, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The truth being taught here is not that the Christian keeps himself, but that Christ keeps him. The Christian does not keep himself, but yet Christ, our Savior, keeps him. He keeps us, right? This assurance of salvation does, it doesn't mean you'll never fail, but it's it's demonstrated, right? By what your response is when you do. Hear me on that. The assurance of salvation doesn't, mean you'll never fail but yet it's demonstrated by what your response is when you you do right so we know we we know eternal life right is assured therefore what we are confident with God in prayer we know victory over sin therefore we are covered by Christ we know what is true therefore we are in him who is real? We know what is true; therefore, we are in Him who is real. Right? God isn't desiring for His children to worry, doubt, lack assurance about whether or not they are faithful followers of Christ. Right through His letter, John provides some tests right to determine if you are a believer or if you're not. So, some of the tests he speaks in, in earlier chapters. Right, we see a test of love, right, for your brothers and sisters. Right, do you genuinely love other Christians? We might say yes, right, and then sometimes it's like, I, no, <laughs> I'm not. Right, then there's the test of righteousness. Do, like, do you desire to live correctly and obediently in a way that pleases our heavenly Father? And lastly, there's the, there's the test of right believing. Do you believe with Everything that Jesus is who he says that he is. Trusting that Jesus is fully God and yet fully man as the Son of God the Father. His thoughts of doubt were were creeping into the minds of his brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He was reminding them that if these things are true of you, you are a Christian. Family, if you know with an unshakable confidence, right, that you can answer yes to these tests we see in 1 John. You are a true sheep of God's flock. Like, it's, it's clear in the scriptures. Right? As the early believers battled against false doctrine and, and teachings of the Gnostics coming their way, it's no different with teachings of modern day philosophers and atheists that will argue, manipulate, and, t- and talk, right, about, talk to people, or talk people uh, out of certain beliefs that they once held to. Right. And if we're not careful to discern their words with the word of God, we as Christians will believe the lie instead of what is true. So contrary to the cultural artistic conceptions, right, verse 19 reveals to us that the devil is not in hell. He's here on earth. Verse 19 reveals to us that the devil is not just in hell, but yet he's here on earth. I heard it said, if Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's is on earth as it is in hell. Pastor John Mark Comer offered a, a, a book titled Live No Lies, and he speaks into the, to the lies the devil feeds us that we eat up instead of the one who is true in Jesus. He says this. It's on the screen. For Jesus, our fight isn't against Rome, the barbarians, to the North, or even the corrupt Jewish aristocracy right, that supported his torture and death in the name of religion, any more than our fight today is against Russia, ISIS, or the other political party, rather it 's against the trium- triumvir- uh, trium- you should know the words that you quote right rather it 's against the triumvirate of the world, right the flesh and the devil. Our victory isn't won by swords, spears, or predator drone strikes, but with truth embodied in self-sacrificial love. This is why it's absolutely crucial for us to recapture the idea of spiritual war. Because as long as we deny the reality of demonic evil, we will demonize people, the very people we are called to love and serve. Family, we know what is true. Therefore, we are in Him who is real. With right? the realities of brokenness all around us, right? Sin that is ever so present in this world, right? The depravity and hurt that is worldwide, knowing Christ Jesus, produces something amazing in the hearts of believers. There is a certainty of the soul that sin cannot dominate you and the evil one cannot bring any harm upon you. Walking through this life as, as, as children of God, he gives us confidence for the calling, right? Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Without Christ, we could neither know God nor overcome sin. It's only made possible here and now because the Son of God has come, and having come, he's given us understanding. Right? The verbs here must be viewed collectively. Right? So the gospel's primary focus isn't the truth that Christ has given us certain things, but instead that he has come to us and in his coming he's provided to us understanding so in other words right the power or capacity of of knowing right to paraphrase we know as a fact that the son of god has given us understanding to come to identify and know and experience him who is real it was this type of knowing that allowed king david to 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 navigate through the trials of of life Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? I will fear no evil. How is David so confident in the shadow of death? For you are with me. Family, there's a battle that rages on in this life, but this assurance of salvation promises an all knowing, right, that you belong to Him, that you belong to Him, and that He is with you always until the end of the age. We know, therefore, we are, right? We know, we know that He's with us, therefore, we are what? Children of God, that He will not leave out to dry. He's the true God in eternal life, right? And for all those who repent, believe, Eternal life in heaven with Christ Jesus himself is promised to you. A question that I received from a friend, uh, it was a few years back, but it's been a question that has just been, it's just, I feel like it's always resurfacing in my heart. But He said, God may be your Savior, but is he Lord of your life? Right? He may be your Savior, but is he Lord over all of your life? Does he have complete control of every area of my life, of your life, right? That's my relationships, that's my marriage, that's, that's my ministry, right? Or that's my finances, that's my time, my everything. Like, does he have complete control over all of those things? Like, is he Lord over it all? During the area of the Crusades in the history of the church, legend has it that before going into battle... The Knights Templar were were baptized, but they would hold their swords high above their heads as they were submerged underwater uh, during their baptism, right? So getting baptized, but yet holding high their sword as they went uh, under the waters, as if to say, Jesus, you can have all of me except this, not my violence, not my pursuit for victory and fame in battle. Now, whether or not this legend uh, is true or uh, or not, right, figuratively speaking, this is something we all do. Right, what sword do you do you find yourself holding that you just can't let go? Right, it could look like the things I, I mentioned prior, or it could look like a past hurt, right, an unhealthy entertainment habit, a sport, a political or possibly a theological position. I find John's ending to be fitting even though some see it as unexpected, right? He says little little children, right writing to writing to believers, keep yourselves from idols. His final exhortation is based on the great assurance he has just revealed. Right? Is the son of God who will keep us, but this does not really relieve us of the responsibility to keep ourselves specifically to keep ourselves from the things we don't desire to die to on the daily for those who aren't so sure where you stand in the eyes of God those who share with clarity the cost of following Jesus do so often from love right it's extremely hard to lay down your entire life at the foot of the cross and it's the constant friction of, right, my way versus God's way internally. And that's why God says, right, daily deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Which means you crucify the desires, right, the idols of your flesh and grab hold of the, d- the deeper desires, right, for God himself. Are you living in obedience that is driven by love for the Lord? it's not a matter of what I say or think, but are you like, are you truly wrestling with the very text in which that reveals who God is and what it is that he requires of? Like, are you wrestling with the text, seeking to abide in it, walk obediently to it on a daily basis? Man, simply saying a sinner's prayer, right, doesn't assure you of salvation. We know that. Being a person with good morals or feeling guilty of your sins doesn't assure you of salvation. Not even attendance alone to worship with the people of God assures you of salvation. The beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in Mark's record of, of gospel of the gospel, Jesus says this in Mark one fifteen. Right, the time is fulfilled; the kingdom of God is at hand. Right, repent and believe in the gospel. God is true to His word, family. Right, True salvation and this assurance of a relationship with Jesus happens when we repent, when we believe that Jesus is who he says that he actually is and we accept his message. Right, of turning from self and in faith turning to Jesus is basically what he's asking when he says repent or believe. Right, Turn from yourself but yet turn to Jesus. You can verbally express repentance and say you believe in a prayer, but know that it's not the prayer itself that saves, right? It's the genuine repentance and belief that is fueling that prayer, that lays hold of salvation. It's very much so possible to repent and believe without praying the prayer in the same way it's possible to what pray the prayer without repenting and believing. So I've wrestled with, uh, and I'm sure you've wrestled with, how do you know that you are saved and will be with Jesus in heaven when you die? Like, How do you know that you know that you know That you know you will be with Jesus when you leave this earth. You come to receive and rest in the promises of God. Day after day after day after day after day until he calls you home in heaven. Family, are you resting in the promises of God? Are you truly resting in the promises of God? Do you truly believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he's already come to redeem and that he's coming back again to restore, making all things new? Right? May we know with certainty, believing, right, trusting in his word, that he will return. And when he does, all those born of him, right? who repented, believed in him, will be with him for all of eternity. I'll close with the words of a a faithful servant of God in, in Samuel. First Samuel, he gives his farewell address to God's people. The people had begged him to ask the Lord that they provide a king for them. But God was displeased because it was the Lord that they should have been proclaiming to be king over them. So these are Samuel's words, right? First Samuel twelve, twenty and 25 reads, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it is please the lord to make you a people for himself moreover as for me right far be it from me that i should sin against the lord by ceasing to pray for you and i will instruct you in the good and the right way only fear the lord serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you but if you still do wickedly you shall be swept away both you and your king. Family, we know with certainty that salvation in Christ is ours when we receive and rest in his promises as sons and daughters of God. We know, therefore we are. Amen? Let me pray for us. And Father, we do... To come before you uh, now, asking that you would just man, speak to our hearts, God, and whether we are wrestling or whether we uh, we have repented and believed, but yet uh, and struggle to believe your word versus the lies that the enemy feeds to us um, in our everyday lives. Right? It is, I just I'm always taken aback, right, to know that. Um, I mean, you are who you say that you are, but yet at the same time, um, you know, I, my actions, right, our actions can tend to uh, speak as if those promises are not true and not real. And Father, forgive us, Yes, you know, forgive us for not clinging to your word uh, more so than the other messages that come our way, uh, more so than the lies that we want to tell ourselves, right? And you're faithful and just to forgive us, and so Father, would you do that? Um, as we reflect well and honestly, um, in the taking of communion that we'll get to do um, in in the the rest of our time of worship. God, I pray for just our hearts that, we tr- would truly learn right daily to die to self. Right, that we would truly learn to. Bear our cross in a way that brings you honor and glory, God, and in a way that really speaks of um, man, the cost of following you, but yet how sweet it actually is to lay it all down. And God reveal to us in ways, whether it be through a brother or through your word um, or you know, whatever it might be, God, man, would you reveal to us the swords in which that we seek to hold high before God. Um, for really and again following you and there's nothing here on this earth that is far greater than the treasure found in your son and help us to know that god i pray god that we would be again uh, ones that walk in a way that reveal who we truly are we are children of god and i again I just ask, Lord, that again, those that uh, don't know for certain that they are, would you um, would you allow the right people to come along um, to speak truth, God? Would you humble uh, the heart, right, to uh, allow them to ask questions, right, of where I currently am, um, and again to know that um, His final destination, her final destination, can be with Jesus, not just in heaven, but yet here and now for the for the walk and god we love you we say thank you and we lift it we lift it all up um, in the precious name of jesus amen